All right, Saul Company, you guys can take a seat. Hey, can we get off the worship band tonight? Come on. We've got some bangers coming up, so just be ready. This is an old building. This might come down, okay? Uh, hey, guys, wow, what a joy. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I'm on staff here with this college ministry. Very kind, very kind. Uh, hey, if you're new here to this ministry and you're like, what the heck, you guys are done? Yes, but we'll be back in the fall, so see you later. We love you guys, and this summer, we'll talk about that later. But uh, so excited for you guys to be here. Uh, man, I was just, man, I was just getting emo over there in the corner by myself. So sad. Uh, not sad, happy, happy tears. Uh, man, who was here in the old church basement days? Oh, yeah. You guys remember, some of you guys are like, what the heck? We met in this horribly hot basement, okay? Like, I was, like, sweating all Thursday. It was horrible. You could never go to the bathroom because you had to walk in front of it. Was, it was terrible. It's not a good experience. Now we have bathrooms, easily accessible. I know. Didn't think you'd be impressed by that. But I was just uh, reflecting on the last two years. And uh, face after face after face of people that I knew that I'd met Jesus in the last two years, um, kept flashing before my eyes, and I'm so thankful for a lot of you guys in this room where you found the faith to enter into an environment like this, and then Jesus radically transformed your life. I'm so thankful for what God has done. And so before we get into our message tonight, I just want to get on my knees and thank Jesus, that this is not about salt company, this is not about hype music, this is not about anything else except him. My prayer tonight is that I would get out of the way and that you would see him clearly. Let me pray as we enter into our time together. Jesus, I'm so, I'm so thankful that I'm going to see people in heaven that I met two months ago four months ago, two years ago, back in that old church basement where you saved people, transformed people, called people, moved people, where the good news of the gospel became real. I'm thankful for the work that you've done since then. Father, I'm thankful that Salt Company isn't about Salt Company, that tonight it's not about me or anyone on this stage, but it's about you, Jesus that you have saved us from the depths of our depravity and brought us into marvelous light through your resurrection. I'm overwhelmed by the mercy of your grace, and I cannot wait to hear story after story after story of people who have encountered a risen king and their lives have been changed forever. I'm so thankful for what you have done these last two years. Pray that this would be a holy moment and that we would leave this place changed. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open it up. 90% of the way through your Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We've got three verses, verses 17, 18, and 19 is where we're going to be. But before we jump in, have you ever noticed there are things in life that you're okay with just being kind of sure about? I call this the shrug sure, okay? It's like, oh, sure. Like when someone asks you, is chicken nuggets from McDonald's actually chicken? You're like, I mean... Probably, like something close, a derivative of chicken. You know, you're like, yeah, it's fine. Or if you leave your apartment and you're like, oh my gosh, did I turn off the oven? And you're like, <laughs> hopefully. Like, those are the shrug shirts. 
There's, there are things in life like that, but there are also things in life where you want to be sure, sure, okay? This is sure, squared. Prime example, skydiving. Who's been skydiving? Has anyone been skydiving? Just a couple. Okay, well, this is going to be harder to relevate. But anyways, you understand the point. Get in a plane, jump off. Okay, guys, the one time I went skydiving, my instructor's name was Led. Which I was like, why would you tell me that? Just lie to my face. Like, I don't need to know how fast you drop. Skydiving. You get skydiving. You want your instructor to not give you a shrug when you ask the question, are we good? Okay. You don't want to be like, "Uh, I don't know. You want him to be like, yes, we're 100% good. No problem. Right? You want to be sure, sure. There are certain things in life that you're fine with being less sure. There are certain things in life you want to be incredibly sure about. Okay. Why do I bring up skydiving? Because there's one thing in your life that you want to be ultimately sure about the moment before you die. And that is where you're going to spend eternity. So my question for you tonight is how sure are you that you will spend eternity in heaven or hell? Open up your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 to 19 is where we're going to be. Tonight's going to be a bit of a shorter message, about 20 minutes, so we can jump back into worship. It's going to be a great time. Verse 17 says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. That's a good text. That's a great text. Guys, this is what I call a compelling passage, right? Because verse 17 is what every human being wants. We want to have confidence in the day after we die. We want to know what's going to happen the moment we pass from death to life, or from life to death. (laughs) Too many gospel presentations. You get it. From life to death. We want to know where we're going to go. We want to have complete assurance. Verse 18 is what we don't want. Boo. We do not want to have live live a life of fear. We don't want fear to define our reality and our entire futures. We don't want anxiety to be the only thing that comes up when we think about our futures. And so verse 17 is what we desperately want, assurance and security of where we're going to be after we die. And verse 18 is what we desperately want to avoid. And verse 19 is how it all comes together, that we love because he has first loved us. Okay, so that's the overview. Let's jump into the text. First thing that I want to talk about is the day of judgment. Yes. Very exciting, I know. If you didn't grow up around church, you're like, what the frick is that? Let me tell you, that is my job. (laughs) Here's what the day of judgment is. It will be a day after you die where you will meet Jesus face to face. No matter who you are, no matter your background, no matter if you grew up in church or not, there will be a moment where you meet Jesus face to face, and he will tell you where you'll go for the rest of eternity, either heaven or hell. Now, I know this is a bit of an awkward conversation to have our last night of Saul Company, but this is what the text says, all right? Don't blame me. Many of you guys are probably aware of what heaven is. This reality that after you die, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if your soul has been transformed by him, that you get to spend eternity with Jesus forever in heaven, eating big peaches and like mangoes and stuff. You know, like golden streets and mangoes. That's all I want in heaven. I love mangoes. Okay, that's not the point. But that's heaven. But my guess is many of us don't have the language around hell. And here's what the New Testament uses as the word for hell. It uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna comes up 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times out of the words or the mouths of Jesus. Now here's what's kind of awkward about this. We love in the modern, lukewarm, lightweight Christianity, Christianity America, to love preach about stories of how kind Jesus is, which he is, how loving he is, how much he heals people. But it's very rarely that we hear a sermon about the reality 
of Gehenna. So here's what John Tyson says about Jesus and hell. He says, Jesus spends way more time than we are comfortable with warning people against the danger of hell and judgment. Okay, here's my hot take on hell. I don't think we talk about it nearly enough. I don't think we think about it almost at all. I think we tend to live our lives as if this life is all that there is. I think we tend to live our lives as though heaven might be our future, but the alternative is just non-existence. But Saul Company, here's why this is so unbelievably important that you get the doctrine of hell and the path out of it. It's because, let me ask you this question. If hell didn't exist, then why did Jesus have to die for your sins? If the alternative to heaven was just an easy way out, it was just walk on your own way out of here, then why would Jesus have to die for your sins? If the punishment wasn't that big of a deal, a sacrifice like Christ wouldn't be needed. Does that make sense? So in order to understand the depths of the sacrifice of the cross of Christ, we must understand the doctrine of hell. Here are three things that will happen to you as you begin to process the doctrine of hell. It will startle you, it will shape you, and it will send you. Okay, the first thing you'll do, it will startle you. Like, guys, every time I read about it, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I don't like it. You shouldn't. It's not a good feeling. But this will give us assurance. There's good news later. But here's the deal. It will startle you because it will do two things in you. One, it will make you actually reflect on your own walk with Jesus. And you will ask questions like, do I actually love Christ for Christ or do I do the salt company thing for the community? Do I actually love Jesus or do I like the gifts that Jesus gives me? Do I actually love him or do I just like having this vague sense of meaning in my life? What the reality of hell will do is it will startle your soul to have introspection on the genuineness of your faith. But the second thing it will startle is it will actually make you process your life. Guys, I was just thinking about this this week. If heaven and hell are real, everything we do on this side of heaven matters. Like, I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago, YOLO way. Yeah, I know, I know. Don't bring it up again. But it's just... Hallie made me a shirt. I really like it. Okay, moving on. If heaven is an actual destination where people could go if they accepted the life of Christ, and hell is an actual destination that people will go if they don't, then that means 8 billion people on this earth will spend eternity somewhere. And if you're here and you have met Jesus, that means you have an incredible mission on your hands. So it will startle you. The second thing it'll do is it will shape you. I know I just talked about this, but it's impossible. It's impossible to understand the gravity of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross unless you understand that what he was saving you from. Keller says this about the cross and hell. Unless you believe in hell, the place of God's absence, you will never know how much Jesus loves you and what he went through for you. So if the destination was not so bad, then the sacrifice wouldn't have been so big. If the punishment of sins was not eternal suffering apart from God, then the eternal one wouldn't have had to suffer in your place and be apart from him on the cross. But if the cross matches the destination or the punishment, then hell is the antithesis of heaven. And the third thing that it will do is it will send you. So, company, when you realize that there are 8 billion people in this world that will spend eternity somewhere, the only logical response is to go is to see your life as a mission field. It's to see the classes that you go to, the teams that you're on, the campuses that you're in, and the city that of, of St. Paul as a mission field of what God wants to do to redeem the world for his glory. 
It will make you go on church plants like Natalie. It will make you go overseas like our team one day. You will go because you recognize the gravity of hell. Okay, deep breath. Okay, I know that was deep. Okay, but now there's good news. Look back with me at verse 17. Here's what verse 17 says. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Okay, guys, this text is crazy. Okay, here's what this text is saying. I love this text. It's so good. Not done at weddings, but still great text, okay? Here's what this text says. If you are a Christian, if your life has been regenerated by the blood of Christ, if the spirit of God dwells within you, then here's what you can have. You can have ultimate confidence on the day of judgment. You ever just feel like as a Christian, you're kind of like, on Tuesdays, I'm good. I won't go to hell. On Wednesdays, though. You know, you ever have that feeling where you start feeling insecure because you're like, oh, my gosh, like, I know Jesus saved me, but I, like, so struggle to be a follower of Jesus. Here's what this text is saying. If the blood of Jesus has washed over your life, the way to answer the question, how sure are you of where you will spend eternity, is 100% sure. Some, some translations say boldness. Like, imagine this. Like, literally think about this with me. You get to the gates of heaven. Jesus is there, all holy and stuff, you know? You've got all your baggage, all of your regrets. You're like, you're wearing them. He's like, can see it all. It's like embarrassing. There's a screen, and it's like showing all your stuff. There's this book. They call it a book, but I'm sure, you know, with technology, maybe a screen. I don't know. Probably not. Probably not. But you get to heaven, and you look at a holy and blameless and perfect Christ, and you have boldness. What, what the heck would that be like? I, I don't know. But what this text is saying is that if you know Jesus, you can approach the throne room of grace with boldness. I think this is what Paul's experience is. My boy Paul, he's the apostle, wrote a lot of the books of the Bible. He's great. He has this one-liner that makes no sense until you come to know Jesus. And that one-liner is to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about this. He's like about to die all the time. You know, he's like getting whipped. He's like getting stoned. He's getting imprisoned. He's got a hard life. But he gets to this point, like, he's consistently about to die. And you know what he thinks? Man, to die is gain. How? What? You know what I mean? Like, I guess just, how? Because he actually believes this. That when he gets to the throne room of grace, when he gets at the intersection between hell and heaven, he knows the boldness that he can have in front of Christ. But he also says to live as Christ. Why does he say that? Because he has an eternal perspective on his life. And he realizes that people will spend eternity somewhere. Okay, so the question is, how do we have confidence, right? That's the question. If that's the confidence, how do we have confidence? Verse 17 through 18 give an initially discouraging text, reality, but I'll make it encouraging, okay? Verse 17 to 18 says, we must be perfected in love. Which immediately sounds like such bad news because you're like, okay. The only way I can go to heaven is being perfect. Wrong. Okay. That is a poor English translation of the Greek, unfortunately. I don't know the Greek, but I read a translation or a commentary that said this, okay? When it says perfected love, it doesn't mean flawless love. It doesn't mean the type of love that Jesus had. It actually means something more along the lines of completion. Here's the essence of the idea. I don't have time to break all that down, but here's the essence of the idea. How you will have confidence on the day of judgment is if you've actually experienced the love of Christ in your life. And he begins to genuinely change you. Where the love of Christ begins to move in your life. And you become more like Jesus. So that at the end of your life, you become just like him. In heaven, not in this life. No one is going to be perfect. But, you know, in heaven. Perfected love. Perfecting, completing. That's the idea. So how can you be confident? 
on the day of the cross if you've actually experienced the love of Christ. So what are the two implications from this text of hell? Not of hell, of confidence. <laughs> that would be unfortunate. Here are the two implications. If you've had the love of Christ change your life, you can be completely confident on the day of the cross or on the day of judgment because as you meet Jesus, you're going to bring all your baggage, like three duffel bags worth of baggage just hanging off of you. So much sin, so much brokenness, so much failure. And as you meet Jesus, all you have to say is, I'm with him. He's the one who saved me. It wasn't about my religious works. It wasn't about what I did. It was about what Jesus did. And because his love has transformed me, I can go in with him. That's the good news. But the second thing that it provides is no fear. Okay, here's the logic of this text. Can you imagine if you actually believe this? Where you had no fear of where you're going to spend eternity. You would answer that question, how sure are you? You're like super sure. You know, I'm like 100% sure. Then you would never have to fear anything in this life. Salt company, this life is but a itty-bitty, you know, like a two-millimeter length thing from eternities, like, you know, miles. I don't know. I don't know what the, you know, the equation would be, but it's a lot. It's a lot to a little, okay? And here's what happens when you know where you're going to spend the lot. You don't have to live a life of fear now. The greatest antithesis to your anxiety and your fears in this life is not by making this life more comfortable it's having a clear view of the next. Here's what the world is going to try to convince you. You're anxious? Just make this life a little bit easier. You're afraid of your future? Just make a little bit more money. Sleep with a little bit more people. Get your body count up. Drink a little bit more alcohol. And here's what it's going to do. It's going to make you more anxious. It's going to make you more afraid because day by day you are approaching death and you don't know where you're going after. You can get all the money all the stuff, and at 80 years old, you could look back on your life and say, oh my gosh, I still don't know where I'm going. And so you will live a life of anxiety for the rest of your life. But the greatest antidote to an anxious life in this world and a life full of fear is not making your life more comfortable now. It's having a clear vision for the next. Okay, as I call the worship band back up, here are the two things I want you to understand is when you have the right view of hell, here's two things that will happen to you. The first one is, it will make you deeply secure, where nothing can shake you. You're like, dude, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to heaven with Jesus forever. I'm chilling. You're solid. You don't have to worry about the day-to-day -day fluctuations of how you feel. You don't have to worry about if you read your Bible four times this week or seven. Like, you don't have to worry about that stuff. If you have been sealed by the blood of Christ, you have eternal security with him. But the second response could be, for many of us in this room tonight. And that is that it might actually startle you. See, this sermon may not have created assurance in your life, it may have created some fear. And that's normal because you're looking at your life and you're saying, I don't have that love that's perfecting. I don't have the genuine love of Christ in my life. Okay, here's my invitation for you. Whether you've come to Salt Company for one week or 27 weeks, okay, all year long, the gospel does not have an expiration date. You can follow Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to do all the religious things. You can just be like the guy on the other cross. Guys, the guy on the other cross, did he have a theological education? No, he did not. Did he have some religious works? Nope, he didn't. Was never baptized because, you know, he was hanging there and then died. All he had when he got to the end of them, at the, when he got to the day of death was, I'm with him. That's it. 
So if you want to follow Jesus, all you have to say is, you know what? I actually can't save myself. I'm with him. Okay. As we close our time together, I, I want to close in a little bit of a different way. Normally, I pray out. You guys get it. But I actually want to close with, with a different way to close by showing you the heart of God in the 66 books of the Bible. Now, here's why I want to do that. It's because God is the point of Salt Company. God is the point of the Bible, and God is the point of your life. The way that you're going to have eternal security is not by your goodness. You suck at being good, okay? It's going to be about the goodness of God and the character of God that he has resurrected from the grave. And if God is powerful enough to redeem you from death, then he will be powerful enough to secure you on the day of judgment. So here we go. I've been looking forward to this all year long. Okay, if you uh, would like the notes, tlee at redemptiontc.com. Okay, I can email it to you. You just let me know. But here's who God is in the 66 books of the Bible. In Genesis, was it on the screen? Yes, it is. Okay. I didn't know. I was like, man, that might have not worked. Okay. To the Bible. In Genesis, he is the creator of all things. In Exodus, he is the bondage breaker. In Leviticus, he is holy. In Numbers, he is steadfast towards rebellious people. I felt that one. In Deuteronomy, he is the provider in all things. In Joshua, he is with us wherever we go. In Judges, he is the righteous judge. In Ruth, he is the redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is our champion. In 2 Samuel, he is our protector. 1 Kings, he is the one who rains fire from heaven. 2 Kings, he is the one with power over death. 1 Chronicles, he is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. And in 2 Chronicles, he is our prophetic hope. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of what's broken. In Nehemiah, he's the reformer of injustice. In Esther, he's the empower of his servants. And in Job, he is faithful in suffering. In Psalms, he is our soul song. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the point of life. In the Song of Solomon, he is the one who loves deeply. In Isaiah, he is the man of sorrows. Come on, Saul, come here, that's good news. In Jeremiah, he is our God in exile. In Lamentations, he is the restorer of our pain. In Ezekiel, he is the opener of graves. In Daniel, he is the other in the fire. Come on. We love that song. In Hosea, he is faithful to the unfaithful. In Joel, he pours out his spirit. In Amos, he is justice. In Obadiah, he is the protector of slaves. In Jonah, he is the deliverer of grace. In Micah, he is compassion. In Nahum, he is jealous for his people. In Habakkuk, he doesn't give up or give in. He goes deep. In Zephaniah, he changes shame into praise. In Haggai, he blesses the defiled. In Zechariah, he is the future king. In Malachi, he, is e he turns evildoers into stubble. Guys, we're in the New Testament. Let's go. This is good news. In Matthew, he's the Messiah who came so we could go. In Mark, he's the Messiah who suffered so we could serve. In Luke, he's the Messiah who ascended so we could rise. And in John, he's the Messiah who washed feet so we could go low. In Acts, he's the movement that changed the world. In Romans, he is the power to save. In 1 Corinthians, he is the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he is the comforter. In Galatians, he is the covenant keeper. In Ephesians, he is the great mystery. In Philippians, he is the humble king. In Colossians, he is the preeminent king. In 1 Thessalonians, he is the returning king. Come on. In 2 Corinthians, he is the firm foundation we need. In 1 Timothy, he is our leader. In 2 Timothy, he is our strength. Titus, he is our sound doctrine. Philemon, he is our boldness. Saul, come and stand with me. In Hebrews 12, he is Jesus, our founder and perfecter of our faith. In James, he is faithful in the power of fire. In 1 Peter, he is our living hope. In 2 Peter, he is our glorious hope. In 1 John, he is love. In 2 John, he is truth. In 3 John, he is good. In Ruth, he is mercy. In 
and in Revelation, he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. He is good. He is good. So, company, has he not been good to us? So why do we worship? Because he is the point of all things. Let us worship our King.